to know. I don't buy this precognitive insanity rubbish. Look, if the bearded wonder could predict the future, he wouldn't have ended up here, would he? Well, whatever happened to him, we're gonna have to find out what it is. You do realize he's gonna know your plan before you even come up with it, dude. In that case, we're gonna have to get him really bloody drunk. Hello, everyone. Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be covering episode 308, entitled Flashes Before Your Eyes. This is the 57th hour of the series, and there are 64 to go. With that, before jumping into the episode summary, I will uh, say, I don't know if it's necessarily uh, a note of warning, but certainly in my uh, in my viewing of the episode in my notes and my overall analysis I'll definitely be going heavy on the uh, the uh, personal notion of mine that Desmond is a Christ figure this uh, of course isn't meant to you know push any particular religious view uh, over another uh, certainly that uh, that is not the losty spirit but uh, I think uh, certainly there is uh, an intellectual argument to be made for Desmond as a Christ figure and uh, I think the show certainly commits to that in this episode. And, uh, you know, that's certainly uh, such a notion of looking at the Bible as literature is not, uh, you know, is uh, something often done and kind of separated from its, uh, you know, from any sort of religious uh, discussion. So with that, without any further ado, let's get into the uh, Wikipedia summary for this episode, which of course is presented in a somewhat uh, unique fashion. Uh, and it goes like this. While in the middle of a conversation with several other castaways, Desmond, without warning, sprints and dives into the ocean. No one on the beach understands what Desmond is doing until he returns with a nearly drowned Claire. Charlie and Hurley conclude that Desmond must be able to see into the future, and they hatch a plan to get Desmond drunk and confess. After several drinks, Charlie asks Desmond about his future seeing abilities. Instead of answering, Desmond gets up to leave, but after Charlie calls him a coward, a drunken Desmond tackles and chokes Charlie, shouting that Charlie does not know what Desmond has been through. With that, the story flashes back. The hatch is shown imploding again, and then Desmond, who was inside, wakes up in a London apartment with his girlfriend, Penelope Widmore. Desmond is clearly puzzled, but is relieved to finally be with Penny again. Desmond later goes to Penny's billionaire father, Charles Widmore, and asks for his permission to marry his daughter. Widmore rejects Desmond, who is crushed and humiliated. Walking out of the building, Desmond sees Charlie singing and playing his guitar for money on the sidewalk. Desmond asks him if he remembers him, but Charlie does not. Frustrated, Desmond rants about his time on the island in predictable rain, which it suddenly does. Later at a pub, Desmond meets with his friend, a physicist named Donovan, and after retelling the events in the island, asks him if time travel is possible. Desmond tries to predict more events, but they do not happen, and his friend assures him that time travel is impossible. While shopping for a ring for Penny, Desmond runs into the shopkeeper, Eloise Hawking. Hawking takes Desmond on a walk, where they see a man crushed to death by falling scaffolding. She explains that although she knew the man would die, she did not help, 
because the universe has a way of course correcting and he would die anyway. Desmond and Penelope go on a walk together and take a picture where he breaks up with her after realizing that he does not have enough money to support her. He returns to the pub where one of his predictions from earlier in the episode about the bartender being attacked finally comes true, proving that he really knew about the future but his timing was off. He ends up being accidentally hit himself and is knocked out. Desmond wakes up back on the island, completely naked, as seen in further instructions. The flashback ends, and Desmond is pulled off Charlie by Hurley. They help Desmond to his tent. Charlie tries to get an answer from him one last time. Desmond reveals that both times he rescued Claire, he was really saving Charlie. Charlie would have been electrocuted, and Charlie would have drowned. Desmond tells Charlie that although he has prevented his death twice, Charlie is destined to die. And with that, let's now get into my thoughts about the episode. This was a a fantastic episode, and one that I knew was going to be good, but also one that left me scratching my head how it was... Yeah, I have this distinct memory, which I've mentioned a number of times in the podcast, uh, of um, not enjoying uh, the, the first couple episodes of the show after it had come back after this 13-week break. And... Um, I mean, last week's uh, Not in Portland certainly was fantastic. Maybe that was with, you know, the, the looking back glasses, if you will, where, you know, we could see, uh, you know, appreciate Juliet Moore's character, uh, be more excited about the return of, uh, or the, the debut of Richard, etc. But this episode was just absolutely fantastic. It, uh, so, so good. Um, almost like a proto-constant, if you will. Um certainly uh, a, a good pairing with the constant and uh, also you know kind of the way the flashback is presented it essentially is one flashback it is um and it's not even in the show's normal you know whooshy flashback although you know rarely are those flashbacks uh you know kind of someone reflecting but we do kind of have this suggestion i think that um as Desmond is saying, I'm not a coward, I'm not a coward, that perhaps he's flashing back himself. He's remembering back to um, his uh, you know, moment of least cowardice where he turned the key and uh, uh, you know, thereby exploding the, uh, the hatch. And then what, what uh, follows from there is one long flashback told in linear order. Um, you know, it's, it's that whole... The whole flashback story presented in linear linear order. It's, there's kind of no other way to put it. Um, of course, that that does somewhat mimic uh, what they would do for the entire episode of the Constant, which is a a, a linear uh, story as Desmond experiences it. Um, so, just absolutely, you know, a, a real real treat of the episode. One that I think perhaps its stock uh, has gone down only because the Constant is so good. But uh, anyhow, let's let's talk a bit about this episode <laughs> properly uh, in specificity, shall we? Um, the previously on Lost segment, it certainly is nice to see Locke and Hurley and Charlie and Desmond and Claire, people who we haven't seen much of uh, as of late. Uh, the episode proper opens with a thoughtful and confuzzled-looking Desmond. Then it cuts to Charlie and Hurley ransacking Sawyer's stash for food, medicine, and... Big piles of pornography. Ah, Sawyer, we, we know you so well. 
between the two of them, it's kind of like the bip and bop comedy hour. Uh, this is interrupted by a very serious-looking Desmond pulling them away from the tent to meet with Locke and Saeed. Uh, the latter two are introduced in a very, very cool kind of hero shot where they're both standing there, maybe turned three-quarters toward the camera. Uh, they both are kind of staring forward in the camera. Uh, you know, it's like a steady cam shot as the camera moves towards the two of them. It's like any moment there, you could just freeze it. And there's your, you know, there's your tough men of Lost kind of picture. And of course, you know, it's great to see all these characters back. We've we've had, you know, precious little of uh, of all these people, all the main beach survivors. Uh, we've had precious little in these first eight episodes, which I think, you know, contributed to... Uh, to some of the malaise of the, you know, that that, that people were feeling uh, while watching the episode. Now, for example, and I'll watch as I, you see the podcast being made live here, because I wasn't going to talk about ratings, uh, but let's open up the old list here of uh, lost episodes. Certainly, um, my grumpiness over this season is reflected in the ratings, we look at the the first six episodes. Uh, they're getting ratings. Um, let's see, eighteen point eight, sixteen point eight, seventeen. You know, kind of sixteen, seventeen million people um, somewhere in there for the first six episodes of season three. Go away for thirteen weeks, which I would argue is ruinous. Now let's look at the ratings. You come back, uh, not in Portland, fourteen point five million viewers. Uh, then at that point. Um, you're basically stuck at under 13 million viewers for the rest of the season, with the exception of the um, the season finale, which gets 13.8. So all of this meaning, they annoyed a certain percentage of the uh, of the viewership away. Now, to be fair, I remember at the time in in the spring of season three, uh, calculating the numbers. Uh, you know, because it was in this spring of 2007 when the Nielsen Ratings Company did start to include DVD numbers. There actually were, I mean, if they law, if the average was, I was doing some quick math here, if the average was a loss of 3.5 million people, it's something like 3.1 million people were simply were accounted for in DVR numbers. So I think, you know, the show just became a little bit less of a, um, you know, you must tune in when it's on. And quite frankly, uh, I can understand that because, you know, you want to be able to pause. You know, if you have a DVR, you want to be able to pause it. You want to be able to discuss. You want to be able to turn it back. Um, so certainly the show a bit of a victim of its own success. But it certainly couldn't help the ratings that, you know, you, you tune in for 15 main characters and while nobody says, boy, I hope that the season finale is going to be a Sun and Jin romance, when those Sun and Jin romance episodes come along, they're always tender and wonderful and beautiful. So to relegate so many of these characters away is uh, is a bit of a nuisance. And I think it's reflected here in the ratings. And to bring it back to this episode, here we are finally getting to spend some time with some of them. Although, as as you know, as the episode progresses... This one giant flashback, you know, with the exception of Charlie and the flashback, this is, you know, there's no more Locke. There's no more uh, Claire after the drowning scene. There's no more, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We don't see, um, we don't see most of them. But anyhow, 
uh, Desmond, here we are. Let, let's continue past the first 30 seconds, shall we? Desmond um, uh, bringing uh, Hurley and Charlie to uh, Locke and Saeed. There's some standard exposition about the dead echo and the camp is on edge, who should be told what, etc. cetera. Uh, then Desmond starts to have his kind of deja vu spider sense. It's excellent acting. It's almost as though he's sort of sniffing out some little whiffs of trouble here, whiffs of trouble there, being able to put it all together. And there's some great camera cutting, too, the way that the, the scene is edited. They're really kind of selling the weirdness, the claustrophobia that he's feeling. Not a physical claustrophobia, mind you, but just kind of this notion of he's not there at the moment listening to the conversation. His mind is somewhere else. Um, with that, he sprints in just a dead run back to the beach, then into the water only to pluck Claire out, uh, and she's almost ridiculously way out. And, I mean, you know, whatever. You, you The waves ta- overtake you. You know, I mean, rarely does someone drown on a, you know, a, a beach where people are living. You know, you don't, you don't drown where the surf is breaking. It's going to be a way out. But it just struck me as a tad far out for somebody who, as she says, goes for a swim every morning. But, c'est la vie. Uh... He gets her back to shore. There's kind of the standard mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, standard chest compressions, punctuated by Claire doing the standard spitting up of water. Uh, it's standard enough, down to Charlie goofing around a bit, but... Let's go back to the Is she okay? Let me help. Hey, I got... Let me front. I'm I got it, Charlie. Hey, yeah, I'll take it. Where are you going? Hey, how did you know? How did you know she was drowning? I'll tell you how he knew. That guy? Sees a future, dude. There, the show has said something that we've all been thinking uh, in some of these previous Desmond episodes this season. Uh, that, you know, it, 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 it's been suggested that he can somehow see the future. And now... Now the show is committing to it. It's their first step into that larger world of time twists, time turns, and dare we say it, time travel. After the title card, we know we're into some great uh, Desmond stuff. Of course, with Desmond looking at his picture of Penny. Uh, It also serves as a nice uh, reminder for people who have either forgotten about it or who haven't uh, seen those episodes. Uh, You know, the casual fan, uh, given that we will see that picture uh, be taken later in this episode. We'll see him finding it after the hatch implosion later in this episode, uh, which of course is chronologically earlier. And um, it's just a nice kind of way to dust off that uh, to dust off that prop and uh, and bring it to the forefront in our minds. Uh, at this point, we have uh, Claire sitting, and uh, Desmond kind of is given enough opportunity uh, to give her some exposition about how it's uh, a picture with the girl in it, and her name is Penny. And, you know, it's, it's kind of this moment to, uh, you know, to hammer home to the viewer, I think especially new viewers, uh, who this person is in the picture. Um, and uh, there's kind of a bit of an eagle-eyed Charlie who's watching from right around the bend. He's giving Desmond kind of the stink eye. You know, it's shades of Locke helping Claire and Charlie getting all in a kerfuffle over it. 
why can't we just stick with with happy, healthy Charlie? And of course, it's ironic, you know, here he's stirring the pot, and what does he find at the end? He finds, you know, that his days are numbered. Uh, speaking of Charlie, he and Hurley conjure up a plan to get Desmond drunk uh, in order to try and, you know, have the search for truth. Um, it really is such a pleasure to see the two of them being this comedy team. Um, it's it's great when they're on screen together. Um, in the next scene, which is the actual attempt to get Desmond drunk, I'll just note, by the way, that Charlie's beard is suspiciously short and is suspiciously well-trimmed. It almost looks as though he's come fresh from the buzzer. Um, although, not knowing uh, in what uh, chronology the, the episode was shot... Well, you know what I was going to say, not knowing how the episode was shot, perhaps it's uh, just his beard growing back after shooting the, the flashback scene. But you know what? Charlie's clean-shaven in that. Desmond is clean-shaven in that. The likelihood that they both shaved previous to these beach scenes seems a bit strange. Like, how, how, how do you do that that they both change, but Charlie's beard is coming back in and Desmond still has his, you know, scraggly beard, so... I don't know. I don't. I don't quite have an answer for that one there. Um, at any rate, the drink of choice ends up being the infamous McCutcheon whiskey, uh, which for first-time viewers means nothing other than Desmond seems to take some sort of meaning in it. Obviously, the irony of it is, a, you know, shown later in the episode where that's the forbidden whiskey that uh, that uh, you know he's not worthy of drinking, according to Widmore. Uh, there's a quick jump cut to a few hours later, which is just a uh, very clean way to move us to, you know, boom, there they are drunk. You know, it's now dark. They're still around the campfire. They're still drinking. The bottle's empty. Uh, and they are indeed rip-roaring drunk. Desmond is, at least. Uh, which is all the opening that Charlie was looking for. Let me ask you something. Anything, pal. How'd you know Claire was drowning? <laughs> I could hear her calling for help. Well, no, I didn't. You're like a mile away. <laughs> well, I suppose I'm, I've got good hearing. You, uh, made the lightning as well. Excuse me? The lightning. Just by chance, you pitch your little rod outside Claire's tent. Two hours later, lightning strikes. His words are cryptically vague and uh, acted certainly with a tinge of self-disdain. <sighs> then we get answers from the show that is often very stingy. Thanks for the drink, pal. Hey, I don't know what you're doing. You best tell us. Oi! Is it because you turned some key that makes you a hero? No hero, brother. I don't know how you're doing, what it is you're doing, but I know a coward when I see one. Yeah! You don't want to know what happened to me! I don't want to know! You don't want to know! Get him off! You don't want to know! I'll see you in another life, 
sudden silent end takes us to a clean-shaven Desmond painting in his flat, or rather, as Penny says, when she appears, the flat that she will now share with him. We repeat viewers certainly pick up right away that the story is, or at least appears to be, uh, told in linear uh, fashion in a linear flashback, much as uh, the constant is done, um, that uh, the button was not pushed. Desmond got the key, turned the key, and woke up in the past. His consciousness having been kind of shuttled off. Whether this notion actually does stick around entirely, I think there is potentially some debate. It's also a bit unfair. I mean, you know, we do see this through uh, constant colored glasses. Um, you know, uh, it's not quite that clean break of consciousness that we see in the constant. It's not um, a definite uh, a definite thing. But that said, the Desmond that we see has knowledge of the future. And, uh, you know, insofar as we understand how the future is presented in this show... Uh, which is that you you really can't change things, that, that time really is a basically linear uh, uh, element or function or force of nature. Uh, you know, I think it's it's safe to be seeing this, this kind of consciousness jumping. At any rate, uh, after the act break, there's a rather uh, iconic moment of looking at an alarm clock that reads 108. You know, kind of a, a nice touch, if nothing else. The dialogue places uh, this right before a job interview with Father Widmore, which Logic tells us is before Desmond goes to prison, of course. Uh, his preparations for the interview, they're interrupted by the familiar beeping sound of the hatch, uh, which, you know, kind of returns in a nice, um, you know, at this point, clearly the hatch is well behind us. We're now eight episodes in. Um, the hatch isn't coming back. Uh, but just, uh, you know, hearing that beep, it's a nice, you know, ooh, Ooh, what's going on? I think it also initially we're meant to think um, this is a sound from outside, you know, that, that perhaps he's dreaming and this is a sound from outside his dream consciousness, uh, um, you know, something to, to wake him up out of this. Um, that said, uh, the, the beep is coming from the microwave, Um there's an odd bit of ponderance there. Uh, at this point, I was finding myself a little less committed uh, to the idea that his consciousness had truly gone back, all of the, the constant, uh, but rather that there was some sort of leaking between the two, you know, a true deja vu where um, there really is that, you know, uh, um, bit of the future and its not, knowledge of it kind of you know, shifting through the the veil of time, if you will. And, I mean, this idea is also supported by the fact that he does seem to be able to mostly operate in the past. He's familiar with the, the various goings-on of the day where, you know, if you were to, to think back five years, eight years ago, uh, you know, would you remember some of these, you know, basic particulars where you keep your toothbrush in a place that you haven't lived in in quite some time and you know those kind of little details but at any rate uh the interview uh, with widmore is filled with kind of prescience and a, a sort of post shadowing if you will as opposed to pre-shadowing you know it's a it's a foreshadowing in uh, uh in reverse um widmore asking if desmond has military experience dun, dun, dun. we know he ends up in the military 
uh, <laughs> anti-military prison, uh, references to the Widmore Foundation sponsoring a solo boat race around the world. It's all kind of heavy with this sort of thing of, you know, the, the future is out there for us. And uh, with all that in mind, uh, Desmond asking for Widmore's permission to marry Penny certainly comes with trepidation. I think that we as even first-time viewers, knowing knowing what the future holds, we know that uh, asking that question can only go very, very wrong. Uh, no, I'm afraid not, sir. This is a 60-year McCutcheon, named after Anderson McCutcheon, esteemed admiral from the Royal Navy. He retired with more medals than any man before or since. Moved to the Highlands to see out his remaining years. Admiral McCutcheon was a great man, Hume. This was his crowning achievement. This swallow is worth more than you could make in a month. And to share it with you would be a waste and a disgrace to the great man who made it. Because you, Hume, will never be a great man. I know I'm not. What you're not is worthy of drinking my whiskey. How could you ever be worthy of my daughter? It's sharp, terribly, terribly sharp dialogue. Of course, Alan Dale's performance as Widmore just sucks you in with his high-minded exclusion. Also a bit of a reminder... Desmond isn't an emperor of industry. He's rather instead like a son of a carpenter, just like Christ who, who he symbolizes. And don't believe me? Desmond leaves Widmore Industries despondent and runs into... to Wonderwall by Oasis is because maybe you're going to be the one that saves me and after all you're my Wonderwall they're sung by a flashback starving artist Charlie of course uh, who has uh, the actor who has shaved for this perhaps that's the source of his buzz beard in the earlier episode Uh, at that point there's now kind of a rather frightening moment where you have Desmond start to deja vu flash, uh, essentially, from one storyline to the other. Footage intercut from last season. Um, there's a really nice bit of interplay with Charlie. Lines like, we're on an island, an island called England. That's why we don't do drugs, he says to the crowd as Desmond starts to hallucinate. You know, cute references to be sure, but um, just you know, part of the part of the great fun of the show, part of the... The uh, You know, it's the show kind of, uh, particularly after the great kind of darkness and malaise of Hydra Island, we're back to kind of that season two, winking at the audience, having a bit of fun um, that that the show does so well. 
Uh, with that, a confused, mumbling Desmond looks up at the camera as it starts to rain. And that's what takes us to the end of the act. After the break, he meets up with his friend Donovan, who conveniently is a physicist. There's standard enough dialogue about the unprovability of what Desmond is predicting, down to not being able to predict what will happen next. We, of course, know that something is up, and he seems just about to give Donovan evidence uh, of a come-from-behind soccer match and a bar fly storming through the door, but it doesn't happen. And then the show gives us a fairly hard and fast rule to live by. There's no such thing as time travel, Des. From what I understand, true love can be just as unlikely. So, if you love Penny, stop messing about and marry her. I love that not only do they commit to the rule, but they also tie it back to Penny. It It is true that time travel doesn't really happen in the show, aside from, you know, the actual time travel experience in season five. All, all, although that did seem to be localized to the island, so I don't know if, you know, that's a bit of an asterisk. Um, also, the notion that, you know, I, I mean, that, that it's kind of like there's a built-in exception when it's islandy, right? But uh, certainly beyond that, then the show speaks to some simple truths. I say we celebrate. I say we celebrate that fate has spared you a miserable existence under the employ of Widmore Industries. Let me take you out tomorrow. Let's go for lobsters on the pier. My treat. I don't think my failure to impress your father has any occasion to celebrate. Well, the occasion is I love you. Why? Why do you love me? Because you're a good man. Simple, pure, clear, heartfelt glue between the two of them. Really just, just lovely, lovely stuff. And with that, moving on, in the next scene, Desmond is preparing to buy a diamond engagement ring from a very, very important character. I'm sorry? It's perfect. I'll take it. No, you won't. Give me the ring. Give it here. I don't understand. This is wrong. You don't buy the ring. You you have second thoughts. You walk right out that door. So come on, let's have it. I don't know what you're on about. You don't buy the ring, Desmond. How do you know my name? Well, I know your name as well as I know that you don't ask Penny to marry you. In fact, you break her heart. Well, breaking her heart, of course, is what drives you in a few short years from now to enter that sailing race to prove her father wrong, which brings you to the island where you spend the next three years of your life entering numbers into the computer until you are forced to turn that fail-safe key. And if you don't do those things, Desmond David Hume, every single one of us is dead. So give me that sodding ring. These words are, of course, from Eloise Hawking. 
who I don't believe is named in the episode. I think that that's very safe to say. She is also, of course, rather ironically, the former wife of Widmore. So the fact that we have, uh, you know, of sorts, Mama Bear and Papa Bear appearing in this episode uh, together, albeit in different scenes uh, in terms of Eloise and, and Widmore. It's a um, just a, a nice, lovely bit of irony there. We've seen that before where linked characters that we didn't know were linked, uh, you know, kind of appear in the same episode or back-to-back scenes or this sort of thing. There's also just a wealth of information as Desmond's recent, and at this point, future, if you will, we're, we're in the flashback, future to the flashback. Uh, so his recent and future years are recounted. And at this point, there really are only two possibilities. Either he's imagining this from the, the post-hatch explosion, or despite what Donovan said, there is some sort of time travel at work. Um, you know, I, I, I think that it's, um, you know, it certainly is up for grabs, but luckily the show doesn't dally in its explanation. For once, the show does not hold back. That man over there is wearing red shoes. So, what then? Just thought it was a bold fashion choice worth noting. I've had a concussion. You're my subconscious. Am I? Oh, my God. You knew that was going to happen, didn't you? Then why didn't you stop it? Why didn't you do anything? Because it wouldn't matter. Had I warned him about the scaffolding, tomorrow he'd be hit by a taxi. If I warned him about the taxi, he'd fall in the shower and break his neck. The universe, unfortunately, has a way of course-correcting. That man was supposed to die. That was his path. Just as it's your path to go to the island. You don't do it because you choose to, Desmond. You do it because you're supposed to. It's so wonderful here that we really get into this notion of the immutability of time, the fact that time can't be changed. And I mean, certainly a staple of so many uh, time travel type shows, particularly when you're going back in the past, is you know the, the ability to change, the, the changeability of time. And for them here to say, no, if you're supposed to die on a Thursday, you're supposed to die on a Thursday. And in the grand scheme of five billion years of, uh, you know, uh, this planet existing thus far and however many billions of years we have until the sun swallows us up, you know, you dying on a Thursday isn't that important. You know, if it if we hold off until Friday, your life, your death is not that important. So, you know, it's scaffolding today, it's a taxi tomorrow, eh, you know, not a big deal. There's really kind of a very chilling um, notion that makes us small, if that's true. And, I mean, certainly we see that it's uh, true with Charlie. You know, Charlie's meant to die. Now, I'm sure if we if we 
really did some analysis we could kind of imagine changes to the show if uh if um charlie had died at one of these earlier points as you know we learned at the end of the episode where where potentially he was going to die but uh you know what a what a what a kind of a downer message albeit coming from a downer uh character in eloise someone who kind of is the keeper of the rules but not ever inclined to question them uh and indeed you know eloise says uh you know that this uh button pushing will be the only truly great thing that desmond does here i think she's uh you know giving opinion to masquerade as fact uh or subsequent seasons haven't been written yet which is probably also the case but in terms of the the internal reality of the show you know the fact that desmond does go on to save all these people uh i would argue that that's the greatest thing that he does the fact that he doesn't push the button that one day and brings these people to the island one of you know, two of whom are going to be the next uh, protectors of the island, one short-term and one long-term. Um, it's just uh, it's it's just such a delicious scene. It really is. And anyhow, with that, the, the story moves to Desmond walking in the rain, briefly considering joining the Royal Scots Guard, obviously a, a bit of a nod to the future. Uh, he rubs his head as well, a message that he's kind of remembering on some level that that the army seems familiar, or, or, or perhaps he'll end up there. Uh, the next day, there's a great, great green screenshot of Penny, presumably in London. Obviously, she's in Hawaii, but they really sell it. You can you can tell that it kind of looks green screen, but it also is just believable. It's so kind of big in its scale that the camera is moving, and she walks by, and it's just this kind of casual, you know, there's the River Thames, and there's uh, Parliament, that... Um, for it being imperfect, it's pulled off with such panache that you have to kind of uh, give them a bit of credit. Uh, as they walk along, there's the uh, the curbside photographer who eggs them into taking a picture together. Uh, we, the audience at this point, we're of course 10 steps ahead. This is the picture. It's about to happen. And we see that the, ad, the, the background to the picture uh, was fake. As the happy couple declines the desert scene and the Alps scene, the third choice is the marina, just like their photo. Now, the show wisely doesn't show the actual picture in this scene. The, you know, when he hands them, you know, the picture that we've seen. Um, aside from seeing it at an extreme angle, no doubt that the two would differ, given that the first picture version didn't have the penny actress and the second one had her photoshopped in. It just, you know, they, they, they do a good job matching it up. I, I think there's some trivia at the end about some of the imperfection. They hide those imperfections uh, from those of us not, you know, rushing to do screen grabs and compare photos. They, you know, that they, they hide it by kind of in plain sight. We don't get to see the two pictures side by side in that scene. Anyhow, after that, the following scene is as gro- is as engrossing as the time traveling, uh, where Desmond puts all the pieces together, and he kind of breaks up, not even kind of, he puts all the pieces together, sort of, and breaks up with Penny. It's the height of acting, and it feels thoroughly in the moment. You really feel like she's shocked, he's decided to do this. It's just wonderfully, wonderfully done. Uh, it's also a testament to Desmond, who is setting aside earthly delights 
out of a sense of dedication to the greater good, to his higher calling, further strengthening, I would argue, this notion of uh, Desmond as a Christ metaphor. With that, Penny walks off in tears, and uh, Desmond throws the ring into the, uh, into the Thames. The act ends with a, a curious but a well-earned computer-generated shot. The camera is underwater, and the ring arcs into the water and right past the camera. Um, it's an effortful, if that's a word. It's not an effortless shot to do. It certainly was took time and money and planning. Um, but it's well-earned. It's a bit curious just because it's, you know, I mean, it's not the most realistic shot. I don't mean because of the quality of the effects, but it's not the most realistic shot just because we know you wouldn't stick a camera there and then have someone throw a ring and it would get that close to the to, to the camera. But, uh, you know, kind of well done nonetheless. After the act break, we're still in the past. This episode, of course, is rather like The Constant, being notable for staying in its linear story, albeit not as long as The Constant. Uh, Desmond goes and gets a pint. And it's at this point that his predicted soccer match and barfly attack happens. Uh, he says uh, that he had the wrong night. And in a moment of supreme writer's flourish, you know, how do you, what's the exit? How do you get out of this flashback if it's being presented somewhat linearly? Um, you know, uh, not turning the key, hatch explodes, this story and then back back on the island after the hatch has exploded. How do you get out of that? This writer's flourish. He tells the bartender to duck and gets the cricket bat in the face. Falling down at that point, we see the turn of the failsafe key, flash of white, then a point of view shot. At this point, we're still in flashback. It's right after the hatch explosion, but the time travel portion of it has ended, of course. With that, we see, uh, we see Desmond walking, He's running through the forest in the nude. He's finding bits of hatch, then the imploded pit itself. And then the picture, that lovely picture and its testament of love. It's a reminder of tortuous proportions. Please, let me go back. Let me go back one more time. I'll do it right. I'll do it right this time. I'm sorry, Penny. I'll change it. <laughs> I'll change it. With that, the, the flashback whoosh arrives, as you heard, suggesting that the, the flashback has ended. In, in supreme writing, in supreme foreshadowing, though, we backtrack a bit. We're back at the beach uh, that night, getting, uh, you know, with Charlie trying to get Desmond drunk. This time, the conversation is edited faster. Charlie's recounting comes rat-a-tat-tat, with Giacchino spelling the importance, the events now re-shown for us visually. How'd you know Claire was drowning? Uh, I could hear her calling for help. You, uh, hear the lightning as well. Just by chance, you pitch your little rod outside Claire's tent. Two hours later, lightning strikes. You're doing what it is you're doing, but I know I'm a coward when I see one. Yeah, 
Can't change it. <coughs> you can't change it. No matter what you try to do, you just can't change it. It's wanked. Let's get him to his tent. Alright, guys, come on. Give me your arm. Come on, stand up. You know, there's a reason that London Desmond looks happy and carefree, and Island Desmond looks damned. He's trapped there. He's trapped on that island, profoundly trapped, not only in the place, but also in the time, kind of having, having tasted this exit. But that, Desmond and Charlie end up back at uh, Desmond's tent, and ultimately what follows is slightly heavy exposition, really spelling it out for those who perhaps only started watching now. Desmond saw flashes of his life after turning the key, but the flashes have remained. Like Claire, asks Charlie... We expect a yes. The answer, though, starts the rest of season three. I wasn't saving Claire, Charlie. I was saving you. This morning, you dove in after Claire. You tried to save her, but... drowned what are you talking about i didn't drown when i saw the lightning hit the roof you were electrocuted and when you heard claire was in the water you you drowned trying to save her i dove in myself so you never went in i've, I've tried brother i've tried twice to save you but the universe has a way of course correcting and, and I can't stop it forever. I'm sorry. I'm sorry because no matter what I try to do, you're going to die, Charlie. There's this moment of slow reality that washes over the viewer. We've already seen how the Red Shoe Man couldn't outrun fate. The show is profoundly foreshadowing here, spelling out that Charlie is going to die, that there is no escaping it. And here the show almost starts a slow mourning for Charlie. Not the shrieking shock of Boone and Shannon and their deaths, but a long slow goodbye to to a favorite character not only you know my favorite character anyway for the time that he's on the show but it's just this i mean it's a character that i think many many people enjoyed because of his comic relief because of his frailty you know jack being a jerk kate always being on the run sawyer always conning people those are those are truly choices uh, of a personal nature. Those are decisions that those people have made to act that way. For the purposes of television, I think that we can be a bit sympathetic to a, to Charlie as a drug addict in, in the, the 
you know, beginning parts of the story. Whether you want to carry that over to a real life discussion, you know, that's that's a totally separate issue. But you know, we have a character here who we we can feel happy that he's freed from his addiction by a place that doesn't have heroin, and then we feel despondent that here he is. You know, we've all had moments where it's less chocolate or less less this or less that, where you're just trying to to make a better choice and. <laughs> you know, to be thrust among the, amongst the thing that you enjoy the most that you're trying to get rid of. We feel sympathy for him. And then, at any rate, here it is, this, you know, a reason that he's beloved, a reason that his return in season six is is so special. And the fact that he kind of continues to appear as season six goes on to the point that he's, you know, you, you feel that he's fully immersed there at, at, at the end of the season come the uh, the concert. Just, just really wonderful. And, uh, you know, as I said, the beginning of uh, the beginning of the end for my favorite character for his time on the show. And then, of course, for me personally, it's ironic that Charlie's fate is delivered by my favorite character of the entire show. It's, you know, Desmond giving him this this news here. So certainly a, a downer ending to this episode where we, you know, there's kind of no escaping the notion that that Charlie is going to die. At some point after this episode. So that's the note that we end on. But let's take a look at Lostpedia. That has a a litany of good stuff. For this chalk filled episode. Uh, First on the advertisement hoardings. Of the football or soccer match. uh, That Desmond was watching. There are ads for. Apollo Candy. The Hanso Foundation. Oceanic Airlines. Mr. Cluck's Chicken Snack. Gannon Car Rentals. Butty's Diapers. Radio RPR 1035. And Kronos, a real-life company selling Titan Doxic, as well as Expose. I think there's some bit here. I don't have it written down. I think there's some question as to whether there can really be an ad for Expose in this flashback. But it's it's cute enough. I mean, it's, you know, whatever. So it's a continuity error. Who cares? Um, another bit from Lostpedia. No character nor actor who appeared in the previous episode, appears in this episode. This is the first of only two times that it happens in the show's history. The second one is the next episode. Also, uh, one of Thomas's paintings can be seen in Charles Widmore's office in 1995-1996. Uh, in 2004, the same painting is back in Claire and Thomas's apartment and raised by another. Uh, in uh, the official Lost podcast, showrunners Lindelof and Cuse clarified and implied that there is no character connection. They explained that Jack Bender, uh, the producing director in Hawaii, likes to add his own paintings to the show. So there you go. Another bit, uh, according to the producers, Desmond really did travel back in time, and the events relived occurred in 1996. Uh, Another bit uh, from Lostpedia. In an Entertainment Weekly article, Lindelof is quoted as saying that this episode uses a flashback device employed, quote, in a way we have never seen before and never will again. Although flashes during the constant are closely similar, I would say, yes, they are similar. It's not the exact same way. It truly is a linearly presented story in the constant, a linear story that happens to take you back in time, whereas this is a flashback to the moment after the key was switched, and then a linear presentation of consciousness traveling but kind of in a wobbly way, and then back to, uh, you know, after the key was turned, and then the flashback ends, etc. Um, the uh, the flashback in this episode 
is the second longest running flashback in the series, with Meet Kevin Johnson being only longer by seconds. Penultimately, when Desmond meets with Widmore in his office, Desmond glances at the Dharma painting on his right. In all other scenes, the painting and the desk lamp are on his left. The word namaste at the top of his painting is spelled backwards in the first shot, but correctly in subsequent shots is on the left side, indicating that this was a reversed shot. I will say that I think that this is a good choice if you want to have the painting in there. Um, for there to be a, a polar bear and then something that is easily read namaste, I think it would be um, it would be too much of a cute moment if you're going to take it like that, it also would be this tremendous mm -hmm. clue that I don't know that necessarily the show intended or wanted to reveal at this point that, you know, Widmore may have this modern art painting relating to his time on the island because he was there. And I don't know that that's, that's necessarily a road that they wanted us to start thinking about at this point. Anyhow, the last little bit uh, from Lostpedia is, uh, of course, debate over the, the photo. Desmond's photograph is different to the one used before and since. Here he is wearing a different shirt, orange in color, compared to the bright red in the original. The orange covered his neck while here it is bare. The background of the marina is different, as is Penny's position, her facial expression. There, ladies and gentlemen, is why they don't show you the photograph that we know side by side with us having just seen it be taken. It would have been too difficult. So, as far as I'm concerned, no harm, no foul. Speaking of harm, next week, 309, Stranger in a Strange Land. Arguably the worst episode of Lost. Unarguably one of the worst ones. Those who say expose is worse, at least we have the death of Nikki and Paolo in expose. With this, there is no recompense, there is no recourse. It will be a difficult podcast to slog through, but... We shall do it together, friends. If you'd like to share feedback, you can say hello to me on Twitter, Looking Back Lost. You can call the listener line, 732-707-1815. You can send an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com. Or always visit the website, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. So thank you one and all for listening. It's always so much fun getting together, with the possible exception of next week, where it might not be any fun for anyone. So on that grim note, as we've discussed this week's episode, which itself ends on a grim note showing that lost and life are intertwined, take care, everybody. Don't be the red shoe man. And bye-bye. <laughs>